0: It's the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and podcast for Tuesday, September 15, 2020. On today's episode, Hershey Dwoskin is here within the headlines. Hershey tackles a a few topics this time, including the situation in Belarus. He talks about uh, climate change and the fires in California and the hurricanes in the Atlantic Ocean. And he touches on the uh, US election. So that is today's episode. Here is Hershey Dwaskin.
1: Hi, everybody. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. Um, I hope that we have a good, interesting afternoon uh, this afternoon. And um, I was casting about thinking different subjects that I could speak about today uh, because there were quite a few few different ones that sort of came to mind for dealing with events of this last week. But I decided to start with, anyway, to start with the uh, rebellion in Belarus. And the reason for that is because it's very rare in, uh, certainly in the history of the Western world, that thousands of people will come out to demonstrate and risk their health and safety for a cause for which they have no real personal um, uh, incentive to uh, invest in. Um, In other words, it's not a demonstration by teachers for better pensions or by police for better working conditions or any of those type of things. The mass demonstrations that occur and are occurring today in Belarus are simply an expression of the desire for freedom. And um, the risks to those demonstrations are severe because this is a kind of police state whose uh, government and whose leader has no hesitation uh, to beat people up and throw them in jail and and even worse, which has already happened. So I thought um, that could be an interesting subject. It's also tied to and related to in some way the poisoning of uh, Alex Navalny, who is the leader of the opposition in Russia, who was poisoned um, uh, by somebody um, just before he got on a flight to Moscow from the far east of Russia. Uh, he he his health was so bad that he was uh, his supporters evacuated him and flew him to Germany where he was put in a hospital in a coma and where they did tests to show that he indeed was poisoned by the by someone using the same poison as was used on um uh Russian defectors um uh, in England so these two events are not they're they're related but they're not tied one to another so in addition to that reason, uh, Belarus certainly plays a um, very important role in uh, Jewish Ashkenazi history. In some sense, it was almost the center of that um, uh, uh, settlement um, for hundreds of years, and so it has that extra interest as well. It's also an interesting country because It's kind of the last of the Soviet Union. In other words, the Soviet Union was made up of 16 republics. They all uh, went their own ways in 1991 when the Soviet Union broke apart. Um, They've all moved in a bit of a different direction. But only in Belarus did time stand still. And the country continued to live and continued to be ruled as as if they were still part of the Soviet Union. So in a certain sense, it's almost like a a kind of a look backward and um, a kind of a a photo of what Soviet life was like in the 1980s, we'll call them. So with that as a bit of a background, um, let's learn a little bit about this country. It's located to the um, west of Russia. Uh, It's located to the north of Ukraine. And it's located to the east of Poland. And these three groups, Poles, Ukrainians, and Russians, are the ones who historically have made up uh, the population of that territory, in addition to Jews who've been living there uh, perhaps since the 900s. So um, that's where it's located, in, in between those three countries. It's a kind of a pathway to go from Russia into Western Europe because Poland is already considered part of Western Europe. And um, one of the sources of income from Belarus is the transit of um, Russian oil and gas in pipelines that are going uh, from the oil and gas fields all across Russia and into Belarus and from there into Poland. that is one way that they do make some of their, some of their income. Um, today, the population makeup of this country is 9.5 million and falling. It's not a very large country in Europe. It's, it's um, about 40% is covered in forests. Um, it has no real outstanding, uh, uh, we'll call them uh, natural um, sites of major interest. It's kind of more or less quite flat, um, and uh, it was, at one time, part of the breadbasket of, um, of uh, the Tsarist Empire. Um, Belarus, uh, interestingly enough, has two official languages, uh, Russian and Belarus- Belarusian. Um, although, although, as I said, 85% of the people are of Belarusian origin, about half speak Russian, and the other half speak uh, Belarus, Belarusian. So it's uh, a kind of a very bilingual uh, country. Uh, the uh, current president always spoke to his people in Russian until uh, he wanted to make nationalism a point. And then just a couple of years ago, he started giving speeches in Belarusian. So um, it's got those two as official national languages but then they have some official minority languages which are believe it or not ukrainian polish and yiddish um, so yiddish is an official language somewhere and belarus is one of the places that it is uh, today however there's uh, almost no jews living there anymore um, but there are still a few thousand and um you know they carry on Um, the country that is called Belarus was most often ruled by, um, neighboring countries, namely Poland at one point and Russia on another point. Um, uh, the, um, the country was divided up after the First World War, where Poland took a piece and, uh, the Soviet Union took another piece. Uh, it it briefly was independent for maybe a year in 1919 or 20. Um, uh, And uh, it became one of the founding republics of the Soviet Union. It had its own uh, capital Minsk, its own parliament, its own flag. uh, But everything under the Soviet Union was controlled centrally from Moscow and um, The sort of trappings of independence or national feelings were just something to um, gain uh, support from the Soviet, uh, from the people for the Soviet Union system. Um, Interestingly enough, in 1945, when the United Nations was created, uh, the Soviet Union asked that they be given three country seats. Uh, The Soviet Union, it's Russia. Um, Ukraine and Belarus were considered to be so called separate countries so they could get three votes instead of one in the United Nations. But of course, as I said, this was all just a kind of a game. Since 1994, in other words, for 26 years, Mr. Lukashenko has been the president of the country. Um, he um, uh, has uh, never had a fair election. Uh, hes uh, rules as a strong man or dictator, and um, he has control over the whole country so let 's go a little bit back now into um, into uh, and of course the you know the reason i 'm speaking about it is that in in this year in the last month or so, there have been massive demonstrations against Mr. Lukashenko asking him to resign because for the fifth time in a row. He uh, held elections that were fake, and this time the people just got fed up and said it's impossible that he could have won 84% of the vote when, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of people are are coming out and demonstrating against him. So, uh, you know, the results are completely false. The um, The European investigators or moderators agree that the election was false. And the people just got fed up and started demonstrating. So Belarus means White Russia. That's what it means in Russian and in Belarusian. So uh, this area called White Russia, which is sometimes what we are familiar with, to to call it that name, um, where where did the name White come from? The answer is no one really, really knows. There's a couple of theories. One is that... um, the uh, people of Belarus were Christianized first, and therefore they, because they were Christians, they were called white. Whereas their neighbors to the north, the Balts, were still pagans, and they were called black, uh, black Balts or black Ruthenians. Um, uh, another theory is that the people wore white clothes, um, or another theory is that the the uh, Tatar um, conquest of, of Central Asia, including Moscow, um, by the uh, Islamic um, the Turkish uh, people, uh, never quite reached as far in Europe as to um, Belarus, and therefore the people were called white or kind of innocent for, for not having come under the rule of the uh, Tatars. So no one really knows why but that's what they've been called since the Middle Ages, white Russians. Uh, when the Poles ruled over them, the Poles tried to impose Polish language and Catholicism on the land. Uh, uh, and um, they uh, ruled that country until the P- Poland itself was conquered uh, and partitioned itself uh, in 1795 between uh russia uh, uh, Austria and uh, Germ- and Prussia um, once the Russians took over, they imposed the Russian language and the Orthodox faith over the people there so uh in eighteen sixty four they forced an adoption of the Cyrillic alphabet that 's the like the Russian alphabet, and um, that was the time when the masses of Jews who were living in Belarus came under um, Russian rule. So in other words, before 1795, there were pretty well almost no Jews living in Russia at all. Um, when Russia expanded its borders, it inherited Jews who were living in what we would call today Belarus and Ukraine uh, and other parts of the Lithuanian um, Uh, 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 kingdom and so they sort of inherited these Jews and what they did was they imposed what was called the Pale of Settlement or restrictions on where Jews could live and they were restricted to the places they lived already and weren't allowed to move to uh, Moscow or to um, other cities in Russia proper. Um, uh, uh, There was a census in 1897 in Belarus and it turned out there that 14% of the population was Jewish, uh, close to uh, 900,000 people uh, at that point. Um, There was emigration from all of Tsarist Russia over to uh, America and Canada and Britain and France um, before the First World War. And, um, you know, this lowered the population there somewhat. Um, In 1939, the Russians and the Germans signed an agreement, this uh, Molotov-Ribbentrop agreement, where they agreed to divide Poland. And the Soviets moved into uh, eastern Poland and sort of added it to Belarus, which was historically also part of Belarus. Um, But then, of course, in 1941, the Germans invaded and uh, conquered all of Belarus and marched towards Moscow. Uh, It's estimated that 90% of the Jews who were living in Belarus before the war were killed. Um, Some left. Um, But there was massive destruction to the whole country itself. So uh, I saw a figure here that said that 200 out of 300 cities were destroyed. 85% of the industry was destroyed. A million buildings were destroyed. And the population of Belarus did not regain uh, its pre-war amounts until 1971. So uh, the Second World War really devastated the country, and of course wiped out the entire Jewish population, which was uh, considerable. Um, the cities of Belarus, or the towns and cities of Belarus, had an even larger Jewish population. So, the main cities of Minsk and Pinsk, and uh, and Vitebsk and Moilev and Boyberisk, uh, those cities, uh, Baranovich had um, forty or even fifty percent Jewish population before the uh, before the Second World War or certainly before the First World War. Um, I think Marc Chagall, the famous painter, he was born in Vitebsk and some of his paintings reflect uh, the um, scenery that he remembered as a child there. Um, Another big event affecting Belarus was the Chernobyl accident in 1986, because the uh, nuclear reactor was on the border between Ukraine and Belarus. And, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of people living in Belarus had to be evacuated. And uh, this 1986 explosion marked the beginning of the beginning of the end of the Soviet Union, because it was shown to all their citizens how weak and unprepared the government was. And the demands for change started getting bigger. And eventually in 1990, the system changed, and um, you know, uh, the communist system uh, expired. Um, <clears throat> now, uh, let's just talk a little bit about now. A little bit about now. Um, so, this Mr. Lukashenko, the prime minister, the president, he kept the Soviet system. He never privatized uh, large industries. Uh, He never privatized the agriculture. Um, He kept complete control of the press, the TV, uh, internet. He kept the old Soviet flag of Belarus from before it became independent. Uh, And he kept the Soviet anthem from before it became independent. So in other words, as I said, this is really a kind of a throwback to the Soviet system, the Soviet regime. What he did offer the people was stability and a modest, stable sort of standard of living. So they never got rich, but also there was no abject poverty in the country because he was able to, um, to sort of distribute what resources there were so that everyone was living at a basically low, low but not very, very low standard of living. The um, income that came into the country was from manufacturing and agriculture, uh, and from the transformation of oil and gas that was coming from Russia into industrial products, uh, plastics and you know, God knows what else you can make from natural gas and oil. And uh, the, the Russians offered or gave the Belarusians this oil and gas at bargain prices. So uh, in order to keep them as an ally, this was one of the uh, gifts that the Russia and Putin gave to the Belarus. And Belarus, of course, used that to uh, be able to produce products that were uh, you know, sellable in Western Europe. Um, the, uh, when, when the Soviet Union did break up in 1991, there was an idea or a plan by the Russians to sort of unite in a way, even economically with Ukraine and Belarus. And because Belarus had no real strength and no real strong sense of national identity, they went along with that. But the Ukrainians were much more uh, hesitant. And in the end, when there was um, uh, this democracy movement in Ukraine, they they split away from this union and indeed became an enemy of, of Russia. Russia subsequently, as you know, took over two big pieces of the Ukraine the Crimean Peninsula in the south, and the eastern Russian-speaking part in the, um, in the southeast of the Ukraine, and things stand like that to this very day. Um, Belarus sort of tried to make a living by playing off Russia on the one hand against the European Union on the other hand, and tried to get support from either side, and it sort of worked for a while. Um, but, um, Lukashenko was so kind of extreme in his, um, in his dictatorship that, uh, many countries shied away from him and shied away from Belarus and, um, were afraid to deal with him because he was, uh, as I said, you know, um, uh, uh, a very strong dictator with no respect at all for human rights or anything else. In a way, he's like a kind of an exaggerated version of Putin. Putin is a more uh, subtle kind of dictator in a way than, uh, than Lukashenko is. Um, he, Lukashenko showed Putin the example of how to be a dictator, how to be a real dictator, how to crack down on dissent and arrest people and this kind of thing. Um... Uh, you always wonder with dictators why it is that they insist on holding elections when their whole aim is to stay in power, uh, sort of no matter what the election results are. Don't you think that holding an election is, is a big risk, uh, that people might uh, vote against what you want? Uh, and yet, every country from North Korea on seems to want to hold elections, even though they're fake. Um, and uh, sometimes, as in the case that we just had now, it's a real risk because if people realize that there was a massive uh, fraud, then they're going to complain. And that's what happened in this case in, um, in, uh, you know, you know, in Belarus. In Russia, they, they use a slightly different system, although they do hold elections. Elections are multi-party type elections. But they cancel out in advance.
0: Philip Goldsmith.
1: They cancel out. Uh, they cancel out. Uh, um, sorry about that. They, they cancel out candidates. Philip
0: Goldsmith.
1: They cancel out candidates, um, uh, you know, before they can run. So that's the system in Russia. They also have a more subtle system in Russia, whereby they promote alternative parties that are really sort of shadow parties for the ruling party in order a bit to confuse voters and think they're giving them a choice when they're really not. So they'll put up sort of alternative candidates for alternative parties, but these candidates are really beholden to Putin and his gang and it's, uh, it's more of a subtle show than anything else. Um, however, however, and I'll get to Mr. Navalny now. Mr. Navalny, who was the leader of the genuine opposition in Russia, uh, after years of sort of trying to organize voters for the non-Putin parties, decided on a different strategy this time. And uh, in the last elections, he organized the system of voting which would support the number two candidate, no matter who that number two candidate was, in opposition to Putin's party. And uh, in other words, let let the opposition all gang up and vote for one candidate, no matter what name is on the ballot. And uh, this system worked uh, so much so that the opposition candidates actually won elections in some of the uh, provinces of Russia, uh, which upset Mr. Uh, Putin to no end. And uh, this forms part of the reason why, um, you know, he or his henchmen decided to uh, silence Mr. Navalny by poisoning him. Now, um, in Belarus, the elections which took place, there was a sort of popular candidate that was put up this time in opposition to Mr. Lukashenko. And uh, and Mr. Lukashenko had him arrested and tossed, uh, had him arrested And um, uh, when he was arrested, his wife said, okay, I will be the candidate in his place. And she went around giving public speeches and got enormous crowds. Um, Needless to say, this frightened Mr. Lukashenko who threatened her and her family. And she left the country and went off to Lithuania. And um, this was, uh, you know, once the election was over, uh, in which she claimed victory. So uh, as it stands now, then is a kind of um, the um, the leader of the opposition. Uh, of several leaders are either in jail or in exile in Lithuania or Poland uh, from the uh, opposition movement of Belarus. The bravery that these people showed is phenomenal, because the amount, the tactics that were used by the uh, Belarus police to beat up, intimidate, uh, and even kill protesters was, were publicized on TV. Uh, in a way, partly to dissuade further demonstrations on the one hand. On the other hand, uh, they, they showed the people how brutal the police were, how brutal the government was to act against its own um, peace-loving uh, demonstrators. An interesting tactic that was used in these demonstrations was to put all the women in front, uh, and it, with the hope that the police would not attack women who were uh, holding signs and who were um, who were uh, obviously peaceful protesters. Without, you know, uh, you know, it wasn't a question of people throwing rocks at the police. These were women who were, um, you know, coming to Minsk from all parts of the country and just demonstrating and so indeed what happened was that was a successful tactic because the police didn't attack these people and once you give people a taste of freedom it's extremely intoxicating and so more and more people came out to demonstrate uh, and not only in Minsk but in other of the provincial cities and um, uh, they also uh, adopted or took the flag, which you might have seen in pictures, which is a kind of a white flag with a red stripe in the middle, that this was a flag that was very briefly used as the flag of Belarus in that post-First War, war period when the country was independent for a year or two. So what, are, what these demonstrators are asking for is a wholesale revolution. Now, not only does this, uh, does this uh, frighten Mr. Lukashenko, who has to decide how much bloodshed is he willing to use to put down the protesters. And he has to decide whether his military forces will back him or will turn their backs on him. But it's also a a lesson for Mr. Putin to say, you know, that if you persist in an anti-democratic way and you get on the wrong side of the people, they can turn against you pretty quickly. And the more you... um, react to these demonstrations the more brutal you are in putting them down the brutality itself becomes a a a kind of an object to demonstrate against and so you're using you're gambling you're gambling your future if you want to try to eliminate all the protesters because this elimination itself becomes a cause for the people to um to act against or to demonstrate against. And um, that's why Mr. Putin is watching this extremely closely. As he did, by the way, in the revolutions in the Ukraine and in Georgia, two fellow Soviet, ex-Soviet republics where um, democracy uh, and freedom demonstrators um, sort of took power over the pre-selected uh, Um, ex-communist leaders of the countries when they became independent. And um, so Putin is looking very carefully at this. Uh, Also, Putin says, look, he can't leave a friend in the lurch when the friend comes over to him and says, I need your help. So Mr. Lukashenko is now in Moscow. Uh, Mr. Putin agreed to give him or lend him a billion and a half dollars and the idea, of course, is, is that that billion and a half dollars is supposed to buy the loyalty of the people of Belarus. <clears throat> and it remains to be seen, of course, if that's going to work. Because sometimes these freedom demonstrations have a momentum of their own. And um, uh, they may end up with uh, kicking out Mr. Lukashenko, who may indeed never return back to um, back to Belarus, just as the former head of the Ukraine, Mr. Yanukovych went to Moscow to seek help uh, when the Ukrainians were uh, demonstrating and uh, he never made it back into the Ukraine because the people just kind of tossed them up. Um, um, and uh, Mr. Lukashenko's message to Putin is, look, if you let them toss me out, you're going to be next. So if we don't stick together, if we dictators don't stick together, then, um, you know, the, our whole world can come tumbling down around us. And, uh, you know, that's the, uh, that's the kind of issue now or the, the uh, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the zeitgeist now. Um, let's just talk a little bit about uh Uh, again, about Mr. Navalny. Um, So he was also a brave person who didn't want to go along with the game of so-called democracy. And he also didn't want to get paid off because, you know, before Russia wants to arrest political um, opponents, they often try to co-opt them or to, to buy them off in one way or another. And Mr. Navalny was just a person who had principles and ideals who said, no, I'm not going to get bought off, and um, you know, his poisoning is definitely a sign of weakness in Russia. So, so why is that? Because either he was poisoned by uh, associates of Putin that Putin didn't directly control, in other words, they did this on their own, or he was poisoned by Putin But to poison a leader of an opposition um, shows that you're afraid of it. And being afraid of somebody shows weakness. So uh, it means he's, um, uh, you know, afraid of what Mr. Navalny could end up doing, which is to turn Russia into a democracy one way or another. Um, On the other hand, up until now, he never arrested Mr. Navalny or put him in, he, he arrested him, but they didn't put him in jail for a long time because the arrests were considered warnings to not misbehave. Um, and yet putting him in jail for a long time, again, would uh, rile up his supporters and lead to who knows what. So he sort of kept Mr. Navalny on a short leash to allow him to operate in a limited way. Uh, Mr. Navalny tried to run for the city council in Moscow at one point, Um, before he was disqualified for uh, ridiculous reasons. Um, And, um, you know, he wanted just to have enough of a veneer of a democracy by leaving Mr. Navalny out in the open rather than put him in jail and be accused of not having a democracy at all. But when push comes to shove and a dictator feels threatened, they will always kind of... um, uh work with uh, force rather than to try to convince the people that they have a good point and that they should be freely elected. So um so that's the situation as far as Russia is concerned. <laughs> Mr. Navalny uh, wants to go back to Russia once he gets better to continue his opposition, but uh you know he may be uh he, he may be convinced that uh the next time. The poison might be even stronger, and he may not survive it. Um, uh, now let's just see what else we've got to do. Oh yes, um, here. Uh, I mentioned about the economy of Belarus. At one point, it was uh, so uh, bad that they had massive inflation, and they had to devalue their money to from ten thousand Belarusian rubles to one. Ruble. There was there's often talk about economic union between Belarus and Russia. Um, There was even talk by Putin of making a new country, of a union of Belarus and Russia, that Putin could be the president of. And that way he could um, avoid the term limits on his presidency, where it said he could only be president for two terms. So he thought, well, if I make a new country of Russia and Belarus then it's a new country, so I could be president again. So that was an idea that he floated um, and uh, tried to buy off Lukashenko, but it didn't quite, quite work out. Maybe the price that Lukashenko wanted was too much, but that never really happened at this point. Um, so, um, you know, that's where we stand at this, at this juncture. And it's, I think, something that the Europe and the world and the U.S., if the U.S. wasn't so sort of navel-gazing at this point, they would uh, give real good support to the people there, because this is a kind of a genuine pro-Western, pro-freedom revolution that um, uh, really uh, is something worthwhile to support. So let me just check my time for a second. Okay. Um, I'm going to stop here before we change subjects. I have another subject to speak about. But let's hear if you've got any comments or questions about uh, about um, Belarus or white Russia. Uh, I'm sure some of our listeners have roots there. My grandparents may have been born there. And um, uh, it's, um, you know, it's kind of the... A forgotten country that sort of makes the headlines with something like this. And, you know, maybe when this calms down, it will be forgotten again. But in the meantime, you know, the world is kind of looking to see what will happen to the demonstrators and will they be confronted or will they succeed in overthrowing this dictatorship? Pretty well every dictator from maybe from China to North Korea uh, of that sort of dictatorship is always afraid that the people will rise up in such huge numbers that just to massacre them would not be an effective solution. And so uh, they have no other, they have no fallback solution because they, they can't convince them in a free way of, of uh, the um, value of the leadership of those people. And so uh, in a way, once the massive demonstrations get going, the regime will often fall like a house of cards. So let me just ask you for a few seconds now if you have any comments or questions about this, and then we'll sort of change topics
0: a bit. I've heard that uh, the Russians say that a Belarusian is like a bastardized Russian, like, 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 joual to proper French. Is that true? It's like a, it's like a, a like a, a like a, a Russian, not as sophisticated as a...
1: Oh, you're, talk, you're talking about the language, the Belarusian language itself. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it is definitely a language which is closely related to Russian. It's more closely related than, say, Ukrainian is, or certainly Polish is. Um, It used to be called Ruthenian. Like, sometimes you'll see... Um, you'll see um, in writings um, uh, mentioning the Ruthenian language. It's R-U-T-H-E-N-I-A-N. Um, it is a closely related language to Russian. Um, it, it is. I wouldn't call it a bastardized uh, language, but it is a closely related language because, you know, they're right next door. So that's, that's what it is. That's who, that's who the people are. Um, there are some small populations of people speaking that language who live in uh, in uh, the far eastern part of Czechoslovakia and parts of the Ukraine also or I mean Slovakia sorry uh, but uh, it is a, it is a distinct language it's, It has its own um, you know its own recognition as a separate language but it is closely closely related to Russian and needless to say when the Soviets were around Everything in the Soviet Union happened in Russian. So no matter where you were, whether you Ukraine or Belarus or you know even the non-Russian speaking states in the Far East, the uh, Kazakhs and you know the the Uzbeks and that um, you know if you didn't know Russian, you were nobody in the Soviet Union. So um, you know that's why I, that's why there is this mixture between Russian and Belarusian in in Belarus. Okay so I'm going to just let, let me you know I'm going to speak maybe just for a few few minutes about the the um issue or no let's let's say how the the issue of climate change has come to the immediate attention of people in the US because of the fires in California and the continuing hurricanes in the Gulf and uh This is a very difficult question to put your mind around because it's very hard to measure certain things and because climate change is a controversial subject where we have something that happens over periods of years if not thousands of years and uh, we try to measure it and talk about it in today's terms and that's why it's such a difficult subject. So, for example, the common common understanding of climate change is that the world is getting warmer. It's undeniably getting warmer. Uh, The average temperatures in the world have gone up by over one degree Celsius uh, since 100 years ago. So that is an undeniable fact. Uh, This warming is taking place in an uneven way so that places close to the equator haven't changed much at all. And the further north you go, so, so north into uh, northern Canada or northern Russia, uh, the further north you go, the greater the acceleration of the warming trend is. And the um, most common explanation for why this is happening is the increase of the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Um, And so this amount of carbon dioxide in parts per million has almost doubled from about 200 to 400 since um, since the Industrial Revolution. Now, you know, I mean, 400 parts per million sounds like nothing. It's like an infinitesimal amount. And yet, this is the. This is the explanation given for the uh, global warming effect. And the effect simply works in the way that um, the atmosphere of the Earth, in other words, the sort of carpet of air which surrounds our planet, is only about 10 miles high. Once you get past that 10 miles, you're pretty well into outer space where there's no atmosphere and where the temperature is freezing all the time. Um, the earth constantly radiates heat and this heat rises in the atmosphere until a certain point where it gets mixed or dissipated into outer space it's sort of slowly the earth is kind of the engine of heat and the heat disperses going upwards into outer space by having more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere it creates a kind of a blanket or a kind of a a kind of a uh, uh, block for to allow, for allowing the heat to escape into the outer atmosphere and into outer space. So it acts as a kind of an insulator, and therefore it keeps the heat inside of the Earth. Once the heat is inside the Earth, and once the Earth starts warming, there is a kind of a vicious cycle because, for example, the um, the uh, ice at the top and the bottom of the world melts and uh, rather than reflect the sunshine which hits the earth, the white ice reflecting it back upwards, the the in- increased ocean surface area absorbs the rays of the sun, heats up the ocean, the ocean heating up then melts more of the ice in the south uh, and then the north and then you have a kind of a vicious circle in that sense of um, of of the earth warming. Now, the connection between the earth warming and the forest fires in California is pretty clear because um, the, the, um, the warmer, the, well, first of all, the climate in California is a kind of a Mediterranean style climate, meaning that you only get rain in one season, which is winter. And that once the winter's over, it pretty well never rains until the next winter. So in the meantime, if the air is getting warmer and warmer throughout the spring and summer, what happens is it, it, the, that extra hot temperature dries out the forest that's, in, uh, that's on the surface of the land. And uh, this drying out and the added temperature uh, increases the danger of fire, which is a natural occurring uh, thing in California and the Western US. Um, and so when the fires do start because the forests are drier and because the temperatures are hotter, the uh, fires just burn more and more and more. The extra damage is caused by people living in places where they didn't live a hundred years ago. So, um, you know, uh, when you uh, spread the suburbs out or people want to live in the middle of nowhere, uh, and there is a fire, uh, naturally there's going to be damage. Whereas, say a hundred years ago, there was no one living there. And so the fire would just uh, destroy trees and that would be it. So fire is not, fire is a definite naturally occurring um, phenomenon in the Western US. In fact, there are some species of trees that can only uh, propagate when there is a fire. So the fire uh, then opens the pine cones that are growing on the tree And then the pine cones are able to sprout and make new trees and only a fire would release them. So, you know, fire is naturally occurring there. But what isn't natural is the uh, degree of uh, forest fires that have been occurring and um, the uh, time that these things start. Traditionally, the main fire season in California is October. And the reason it's in October is because there's something called the Santa Ana winds, which are winds that uh, are come out of the desert in um, Nevada, Arizona. Uh, they drop down the sides of the Sierra Mountains, and they sort of shoot like a funnel into the heartland of California. And they're blowing from east to west, whereas normally in the northern hemisphere, our winds are coming from west to east, as you will probably know. So these hot winds are coming out of the deserts, blowing across uh, the sort of plains and the forests of California until they hit the coast. And if for some reason a fire starts uh, in the forest when these winds are going, obviously there's just no uh, way to stop them and the fire will grow, uh, you know, grow and spread. And it will also grow and spread in a in a um, west to east direction rather than the other way around, which um, means that uh, since people live on the coast, then, you know, these people are more uh, threatened. But the fires, instead of starting in October, as you could see, are going big in September. And um, uh, it just means that the whole sort of ecology of the, uh, uh, is changed. And many people are tying this to climate change—that the, the um, you know the changing climate is what makes these things worse. I think it's hard to argue with that particular, uh, with that particular uh, sentiment. But climate change is something that happens over tens of thousands of years, and weather is something that happens from one day to the next. So you can postulate that climate change is the cause of it, but you can't prove it because Weather changes from one day to the next. Uh, It's worthwhile to mention to all of us, to our listeners here, that uh, 20,000 years ago, which is like a a kind of a pin in the history of the the Earth, uh, we were in an ice age, and we were in the fourth ice age. So we've had sort of four ice ages going from 100,000 years ago to 20,000 years ago, where you had periods of great freezing and warming and freezing and warming without people being the cause of it. So we don't really know what the cause of it was. And 20,000 years ago is so short in the history of the earth, which is somewhere around four and a half billion years old, that uh, what's 20,000 years is nothing. So, I mean, we could be having another ice age around the corner in 50,000 years from now. And it's like around the corner in terms of the the, uh, sort of uh, history of the world. Um, And that's why you can't easily point a finger and say, oh, you know, if we only uh, limited um, carbon um, dioxide in the atmosphere, then the, the climate would sort of go back to the way it was. It's very hard to know that because obviously there's no way to prove it. Now, just moving over to the hurricanes in the Gulf of Mexico, which there have been so many so far, this hurricane season's gonna be just about a record for the number of hurricanes. Uh, hurricanes are also a naturally occurring phenomenon. Um, they've been hurricanes uh, probably since, you know, uh, since the continents divided the way they did uh, hundreds of millions of years ago. But what's changed is the intensity of the hurricanes and the damage that they cause. So the damage that they cause, again, can be explained by more people living in the path of a hurricane, more people living on the coastlines, um, and therefore there's more targets for the hurricane to hit. The intensity of the hurricane is is, uh, explained by the increasing temperature of the water in uh, the Atlantic Ocean and in the uh, Gulf of Mexico. So hurricanes cannot exist without warm water. Warm water is the fuel which uh, propels the hurricanes to go forward. Um, Another point is that um, warm air can hold more water than cold air. We all kind of understand that from our own humid summers and kind of dryish winters. Um, And if the world is getting warmer, That means that the air in the world is getting warmer. That means that the air can hold more moisture. And the more moisture there is in the atmosphere during a hurricane, then the more rain is gonna fall on the targets. And I was just looking at a paper, it said that there could be 30 inches of rain on the Gulf Coast. I mean, I can't even imagine 30 inches of rain. The hurricane that hit Houston a few years ago had. The record high of rain of 50 inches of rain close to Houston in over a 24 hour period. I mean, it's just unbelievable how much rain that is. You know, we here uh, rarely will get more than a half an inch of rain at one time. And even uh, our great flood of 1987, uh, when the Carry was underwater, there was four inches of rain at that point, not 30 inches of rain. There's a big difference <laughs> between four and 30 inches. And so the hurricanes therefore are stronger because the temperature of the water in the ocean is stronger and the temperature of the air in the atmosphere is hotter. And th- those two working together means a more powerful hurricane in terms of wind speed and also more powerful in terms of w- or rain or water that's, uh, that's, uh, you know, in the clouds. And, you know, most often in a hurricane, it's not the wind that causes the, the problems, but the rain and the flooding uh, that comes after the hurricane passes over that causes the problem. Um, It's also not not in this case of this Gulf hurricane, but it's also conceivable that hurricanes will be moving farther north as the um, atmosphere warms. So instead of hitting Florida all the time or hitting Cuba all the time, uh, you know, we'll get hurricanes hitting the Carolinas and Georgia and even further north, and we've already had several like that. So, uh, this is also something that's kind of unusual, but is explained by the increased temperature both of the air and of the Atlantic Ocean. And um, if we talk about the Pacific Ocean, they also have hurricanes there uh, called cyclones. Um, Uh, and there have been some monster ones that hit the Philippines, which is the most hurricane-prone country in the whole world, um, where, you know, the the wind speeds have gone over 150 miles an hour, and, uh, you know, these are really epic storms, um, and they can reach as far north as Japan, and um, it's, uh, you know, again, just as we... Are concentrating on the Atlantic Ocean because of the hurricane season. Um, the Pacific Ocean in the in the you know west, ha, the western coast of the Pacific, they've had the most enormous storms themselves, and it's all because of the same situation. Now, Mr. Trump, we'll go back to him has said that the problem with the the, uh, wildfires has to do with forest management, meaning that if you allow dead wood to accumulate on the ground, it's going to burn when a forest fire happens and it makes the fire worse. Uh, You know, at first glance, you might say this is kind of ridiculous because uh, a forest is a forest. It's not meant to be walked around and, you know, have people pick up dead branches because they're so massive. The amount of forest is huge. Uh, Secondly, uh, 50% of the forest in the West of the United States is owned by the federal government. So if there's mismanagement, he's the one who's doing the mismanaging. Um, But there is a grain of truth in what he's saying. And the um, forest managers in the... um, Uh, Scandinavian countries, namely uh, Norway, Sweden, and Finland, have experimented with trying to go into a native uh, wild forest and managing the forest by thinning trees out to allow more sunshine to come into the forest floor, um, and thereby uh, allowing for the growth of sort of bigger trees but fewer trees. And also by thinning out the sort of underbrush, uh, they lessen the amount of chance of having a forest fire. So his idea in theory has some sense to it, but only if practiced on a very tiny um, uh, area and not over you know, all of California, all of Oregon and all of Washington, that would be impossible to do. And uh, in any sense, um, Uh, you know, nature is nature, and what he's uh, trying to suggest is that, um, you know, uh, that we uh, kind of uh, tame nature, and, um, you know, it's more of an excuse, I would say, than anything else. Um, In terms of hurricane uh, management, uh, you know, they have thought of all kinds of different ideas of how to Break apart hurricanes before they arrive on the coast. Um, You know, there have even been talk about dropping a bomb in a hurricane to blow it apart, which of course never happened. Um, But we haven't had any real um, uh, success in trying to uh, sort of steer a hurricane away from where it's going or to break it apart or something like that. Um, You know, the main action is to have good warnings, to raise the level of buildings along the shoreline um, and, uh, you know, to ride it out in a safe way by evacuating. So you might say that this is a question of adaptation, that, you know, climate change is something that is really not possible to change the way we are in this world and that we humans just have to adapt to it. Um, and uh, you know, in the most practical sense, this is this is the way it's going to be. Uh, people who talk about uh, you know, there's people who talk about fighting climate change, but they have no real understanding of how much or how huge a force it is. And some people might say, "Well, if I get you know a Tesla instead of driving a car, I'm going to help the climate change." But anyone who talks that way has no understanding of statistics and mathematics. So um, again, I'm going to stop here and see what kind of comments you might have about this particular subject. Um, And I would just add that in Canada, we're fortunate to not really be directly impacted by the worst aspects of climate change. And, um, you know, when something changes uh, very often, Uh, The changes are for the worst in some places, but for the better in others. And uh, people are saying that Canada is one of the countries that can benefit from climate change in the sense that, um, you know, our country is cold enough as it is and being a little bit less cold can't be a bad idea. But in a more practical sense, um, you know, if it opens up the Northwest Passage to ships traveling between, say, Japan and Europe, Uh, avoiding going through the Suez Canal and just going across the top of Canada. That would be a boon for Canada. Uh, Ships are already trying to make it across the top of Russia, which is a lot easier to go go, uh, along than uh, across the top of Canada because we have all those islands in the middle. But still, the Northwest Passage was always a dream of uh, explorers, and it... You know, we've actually had a cruise ship go through, uh, I think it was last year, for the first time. Um, In addition, it might mean that our growing season is longer for agriculture. It might mean that we have less heating expenses in the winter because the climate is a little bit milder. Um, And so, uh, you know, there are certain advantages. You know, the disadvantages are, you know, pests and insects and mosquitoes and other things can... Can flourish in a warmer uh, climate and um, you know things like Lyme disease which were never around here um, have arrived because uh, the ticks can adapt to that kind of uh, warmer winters so you know that's just a kind of a little surface talk about climate change and uh, the um, you know the hurricanes and fires in the United States and um, we'll see what you have to say. So what's, what's, um, you know, are you deniers or are you uh, believers? Um, uh, is uh, this something which we have to adapt to and live with, or is it something that's worthwhile to, to fight and change? So for somebody that doesn't believe in science or that doesn't believe in climate change, like Mr. Trump, uh, well, what do you think it would take for them to actually become believers that climate change does exist, that science is actually making a lot of things advance? Um, what do you think it will take? For- um, first of all, I, I, for, I don't know what Mr. Trump believes. I don't know if he believes in uh, climate change or science or not. Because he says things which he thinks are convenient for him And, you know, he can say one thing on one day and go completely opposite the next day. Um, It's impossible on a daily basis to uh, point your finger at a certain event and say, this happened because of climate change. And as I said at the beginning, it's because climate change happens, you know, over a very, very long period of time. Um, In the Earth's history, we've had, tons of times when the climate has been much warmer than today and tons of times when it's been much colder than today. If you go up to the Northwest Territories, we have a petrified forest in um, the islands, um, you know, near uh, Ellesmere Island where trees were growing at at a certain time in history. Um, In Antarctica, there's tons of coal and coal can only come from the decomposition of, uh, you know, trees and plants and things like that. So without human beings even even being around, the climate has changed lots of times in the Earth's history, and it may be due to the angle of the sun and the rotation of the Earth. It may be due to internal forces inside of the Earth, remember, which is a kind of just a hot, molten uh, mass of iron, which... You know, for some reason or another, the heat from that might, you know, get a little bit closer to the surface. So um, uh, it's, it's very hard to point your finger at an, an individual event and say, oh, look, this is because of climate change. But what you can say is that taken as a whole, if you take the average high temperatures and the average low temperatures all around the world over a period of 50 years, there's no question that the world is getting warmer as a whole. Um, and that warmth is pretty well, I have to say, pretty well spread out just about everywhere in the world. There's hardly any places in the world that are getting colder than average, although there are some. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, northeastern the northeastern shore of Canada is one of the places that hasn't been you know, as affected in that way. In other words, like Labrador, uh, Northeastern Quebec, those places. But in general, the world is getting warmer everywhere. And I've traveled all around the world and I ask people pretty well everywhere I go. And they all say the same thing. The world is getting warmer. The glaciers in the Andes are melting. The glaciers in the Alps are melting. Um, the, uh, the uh, climate is getting, uh, the temperatures are getting hotter as we saw in, um, in, uh, in Canada, in the north. Uh, one, of the, uh, one of the dangers of that is the permafrost melting in the north. And the, the land up north contains a lot of sort of frozen methane gas. And the methane is natural gas. And if the earth warms up enough, this gas can actually make it to the surface and escape in the atmosphere. And methane, or natural gas, is hundreds of times more insulating than carbon dioxide. And so uh, this warming up of the earth uh, leading to the escape of methane gas is something which is quite considerable. Uh, You know, having so many animals around, they release tons of methane gas, and so the more people there are on earth, the more breathers there are, and the more animals there are to feed them. And those animals release tons of methane gas. And so, you know, it all, it all goes up and up and up and up. And, you know, this can explain why the, this blanket is getting, you know, more and more thick. Um, but you can't convince people, you, you can't convince people because they're looking for proof and there is no proof. There is no, there's correlations, but there's no proof. And so if somebody makes up their mind and says, climate change is a hoax, you can't, you know, uh, dissuade them by saying, well, look how hot it is. They'll say, okay, yeah, but, you know, next year will be colder. Or, or as Trump used to say, you know, on a cold day in New York, he said, who wants climate change? Uh, you know, I, I remember <laughs> the the there was a scientific um meeting of people studying climate change. And where do you think they had this meeting? It was in Bali, in Indonesia. And I said to myself, how come they don't go to Winnipeg in winter and talk about climate change there? Let them walk outside and, you know, complain about how much the earth is getting warm. So as I say, um, you know, weather and climate change are sometimes confused.
0: All that exchange between the governor of California and the Trump where he said it's I, definitely established by scientists that theres that that there is that climate change is a fact and he started laughing he said there's no agreement among scientists about climate change what's your yes
1: yes I saw that I did see that interview um, I did see it for sure uh, you know if you want to cherry pick a scientist and if you want to um to to kind of you know uh oh uh, challenge the definition of what proof is, uh, you can always do that. You know, Uh, you could say that the world is getting warmer, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's climate change. You could just say, well, you know, we've had a string of warm years since 2000. And as I said, you know, 20 years in the history of the world is nothing. So, you know, who's to say that in 40 years, it won't turn around. Nobody can know that. Um, But there is no question that the world is getting warmer, and um, you know the cause of it is most likely, but not for sure, the um, accumulation of the uh, percentage or the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Because that's the only thing that's changed in the atmosphere. The rest of it isn't changed. That's the only change that we do have. Um, you know, the atmosphere <laughs> that we have. Is 75% nitrogen, which is uh, an inert gas, and 21% oxygen. Um, And, um, you know, the carbon dioxide is a tiny and an infinitesimal percentage of what the atmosphere is. And some people will say, well, how could such a tiny amount make such a big difference? And that's the part that I find a bit hard to understand myself. Um, You know, 400 parts per million over 200 parts per million, like, it's still parts per million. You know, It's like a tiny amount. Do you have any more questions, Howard?
0: No, thank you.
1: Thank you, Howard. Thank you so much. I appreciate you so much uh, for uh, listening and asking such good questions. You know, the, the sort of um, uh, election season in the US is going to be only getting hotter in the next six weeks. Uh, there's about six weeks left to go. Um, you know, the whole world is in a way hanging on the results of this election, and we Canadians are maybe more interested than most. Uh, The travel ban to the states is still on. And uh, some people were saying that, um, you know, uh, Canada would not want to lift this ban until after the election in order not to, um, you know, maybe in some way interfere with the uh, results. Um, Um... so we're all primed to watch that. It is amazing. I always say how America pays no attention to Canada whatsoever. Uh, and I, I don't know if any of you know this, but there was actually an election in New Brunswick yesterday. It didn't make it didn't make headlines in in the uh, you know uh, in the uh, Canadian press. Never mind on CNN. You know, live from Fredericton. We have five different correspondents covering the results of uh, the New Brunswick election and the big charts on the wall and everything like that. You know, we're so insignificant in a way compared to uh, the U.S. And, um, uh, you know, it's it's proved to be an advantage, I would say, for us right now in Canada. And, um, you know, I think most Canadians are very, uh, uh, you know, sort of proud of what, We've done in the in the fight against COVID, and also proud in holding the country together uh, without the horrible split that we have in the states, which is something which um, I think will take years to heal. Uh, you know, it won't change the day if the government changes in the U.S. Things are not going to go back to normal the next day. The country is just so deeply divided, and we have to thank ourselves that we're not in that situation. So, um again, if you've got subjects that you'd like to hear about, uh you can um, email angela uh or email me uh, and um, uh you know I'll be glad to look 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 things up and uh to speak about them because there's just no end of interesting subjects to speak about. so I want to thank everyone for listening and for tuning in and for coming and uh, I I appreciate it very much. And I'm hoping one day to see you all in person because that would be the best thing. So thanks again.
0: Well, that is today's episode of the Code St. Luke podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Thank you to our guests and thank you to you for listening here today. The show is produced by me, Daryl Levine. The telephone broadcasting service and podcast was launched as a way to get content into your home during the pandemic period. As you know, we had to stop our events at the library and at Parks and Recreation. So we hope you're enjoying the podcast as a sort of a virtual way of getting the content to you so you can hear your favorite speakers at home. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Every rating and review helps others to find the show. Have a great day.